All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another week of uh, Chariots Tech Chat Tuesdays. I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Sujan Fadia. And Sujan, I want to thank you. Uh, this is for, uh, what the heck is the date? It's February 16th. I want to thank you for doing uh, last week. Uh, you and Rich really knocked it out of the park. That was awesome. Oh, thank you. It was a, it was a great time. Cool. And uh, I know you were talking about, uh, what was your topics last week? Let's see. It was uh, TensorFlow, um, machine learning with TensorFlow and some Arduino work. That sounds cool. So yeah, check it out. If you're, first of all, if you came here from a Google link or from, you know, just uh, someone posting on social media, if you go to chariotsolutions.com slash techcast, it'll pop you to this page. Uh, or if you search for it in iTunes or, you know, all the other different uh, podcast catchers, you'll be able to find the Chariot TechCast, which is where this particular feed lives. Um, and please subscribe and we'd love to have you uh, send feedback to at TechCast feedback on Twitter uh, or techcastfeedback at chariotsolutions.com. Uh, but yeah, we have a lot of interesting uh, links today for a, a dev news segment on the Tech Chat Tuesday. So first thing I want to talk about is the fact that uh, Philly Emerging Tech is still um, being sold. The tickets are still available for 2021 as the whole table shakes as they bump it. Uh, May 4th to 6th, 2021. We are out of the early bird, but it's still not super expensive. It's $89 a ticket. Uh, and we got some amazing speakers. Uh, first of all, we have Alan Kay as our featured keynote, number one, uh, and he is a pioneer in computing. Uh, he helped invent personal computing, created the first graphical user interface at Xerox PARC, uh, an object-oriented programming approach, uh, and he's really, really amazing. So he's going to be one of our keynote speakers. Uh, and I just pinch myself when I think that he's there. And then we also have Kent Beck, the author of Extreme Programming. Um, that's an amazing speaker get as well. Um, we have a whole bunch of other speakers right now. We've got Jessica Kerr coming back. And she's an excellent speaker. Uh, Daniel Spiewak. Um, we've got, uh, let's see, Elm in Actions, Richard Feldman. Brian Getz from Java, uh, the Java language architect who is a friend of the uh, conference and uh, loves to come back. We have the lead developer from ClojureScript, David Nolan, who's always a great talk, uh, and many, many others. So, uh, you know, check out. It's going to be May 4th to 6th. Check out the show, and hopefully we'll virtually see you there. I think this year hopefully is the last year of virtual conferences for us, but, uh, you know, certainly we've learned a lot so far from doing things online as well. So I think it's it's been great yeah. uh, and unexpected uh, positives from doing it that way. All right. And then – um. Don't forget, you can also hit our blog, our, you know, tradesolutions.com. Our resources page has all this stuff in it. So resources, blog, or podcasts, um, videos, things like that. Uh, I do want to mention in our events page something that's coming up that I'm uh, running with uh, Tracy Wilson-Rossman and Aaron Mulder. Uh, we have the 30 Years of Linux and Open Source Software event. So uh, Nithya Ruff, um, who is a chair of the Linux Foundation Board of Directors and the Open Source Office at Comcast, um, so Nithya is, uh, she's, she's going to be speaking with us on, you know, what's going on in the, uh, Linux, uh, software foundation. And we'll talk about features with her. And then Aaron and I are going to look backward at all of our work with open source and various projects that we've worked uh, with and used over the years. And that's coming up on March 18th, I believe. Let me double check that. Yes. March 18th, 315 to 5 PM. So you can make it an early day at work and join us online. It's a free event uh, and it should be fun and interesting. We'll take questions from the audience and put them in there as well. 
All right. And uh, so, yeah, don't forget Philly ETE coming up and 30 years of Linux and open source are two events that we have. The other thing you can check out is our YouTube page. You hit uh, youtube.com slash chariot solutions. We got a ton of stuff here. Last week's Tech Chat Tuesdays. In fact, we have a channel for Tech Chat Tuesdays. Uh, and if you go to playlists, I should say a playlist uh, for all of our prior shows, including a, a super playlist of all of our Philly ETE events, if you want to check out the kinds of speakers we've had in the past. In fact, I bring one of them up during the show. All right. So without further ado, uh, let's start with some dev news. So let's pick this first. Um, so the M1 processor uh, in Apple Silicon has been a big change for Apple. You know, this ARM-based, uh, their own ARM-based fabricated uh, chips uh, and basically system on a chipboard that has the memory right next to the CPU and all sorts of really super powerful stuff. It has been driving super, super performance on a Mac at very low power and very low heat. Uh, and so that's what the latest MacBook Air and MacBook Pro and Mac Mini have had in them. Uh, as alternatives to the Intel chipsets. Uh, big deal here is that uh, Homebrew just got native Apple Silicon and M1 support too. So Sujan, I know I use uh, Homebrew for a few projects uh, and it was more earlier, but it certainly has a lot of developers interests. You know, if you want to load curl or something, quickest way to do is just do a brew install, right? Yeah, I still use Homebrew quite a bit, so. Yeah. Like if you want to install like uh, NVIM or something like that, it's easy yeah. to just do it from there. So apparently what's happening is uh, they're, they're creating, um, uh, they, they have now a split of M1 versus um, uh, Intel builds of things. Uh, and if it doesn't work in the M1, you can always run the, uh, you know, the emulator, uh, whatchamacallit, the Rosetta 2 version of Terminal and run the older ones. And they'll run a little slower, but... If you take a look at a formula, I'll show you an example here. Here's curl. Uh, and you can see if it does directly support native Apple Silicon, you'll see right there, uh, it'll tell you the operating system it's running in. And I got this from formula.brew.sh, which is where you can look up all the different formula. So if you're curious, if you're looking at getting an M1 Mac and you want to make sure your tools are there, that's a place you check. Um, so this is Homebrew 3. Uh, and Samuel Axon at Ars Technica is the person who brought this article which just kind of like announces it, uh, points it out. So that's an interesting thing. Also, the other thing they did recently is they moved all their discussions over to GitHub discussions. So if you're looking for support for Homebrew, go to GitHub discussions off their homepage. You'll notice that the Discord channel is archived. It'll be interesting to see all the support that comes out this year for stuff like this. And I know Parallels had sort of a preview release out. They don't have full support yet, but they're working on it. Um, if Folks that don't know Parallels is virtualization software for the Mac, like, you know, VirtualBox or VMware. Um, it's, you know, not free, but it's highly performant, works really smoothly. Um, number of our consultants use it. Um, so it'll, it'll be exciting when they have full support for M1 as well. And I understand that Docker has a beta release, which is great. So the minute Docker is fully working on, on the M1 Apple Silicon, that's going to jump some developers over, I'm sure. All right, uh, let's check out this one. This is an interesting kind of law and computing thing. So as I find my mouse again, there it is. Uh, accused murderer wins right to check source code of DNA testing kit used by police. This is fascinating. So, uh, okay, so in a New Jersey court, um, uh, this is Thomas Claiborne in the register who has this main article. Um, so there was a fatal shooting in Jersey City in 2017. Uh, the defense attorneys for the defendant, they want to review the source code of a tool called True Allele. 
which is a genetic assessment software tool. They use to test the uh, weapon. Uh, there was genetic material on the weapon, I guess. Uh, and so the company's name is Cybergenics, and they claim that the source code is a trade secret. Now, when you're you know dealing with law enforcement and you've got someone's life in jeopardy, you know th this opens some real legal questions. Like, is this thing able to be reviewed to make sure the software is safe and is actually selecting the right people? Um, so apparently, it's 170,000 lines of MATLAB code, um, which is a lot of code. <laughs> Uh, and then uh, the company offered to let the defense use the code, but they said, look, you're going to have to sign a non-disclosure. We're in court, so that's interesting. Uh, and $1 million in fines if it gets out. They refused. So that got appealed, uh, and the appeals judge uh, allowed it. So it's interesting because if you look at the history of this kind of thing, there are other pieces of software out there, and this is mentioned in this register article, like STR Mix and FST, that have had problems in the past and that have affected other cases. I think there were something like 60 guilty pleas were open to question on one of these pieces of software. And if you dig deeper, ProPublica uh, actually has a article on the unsealing of another piece of software back in 2017. Uh, and so this was uh, on FST. Uh, a judge in the Southern District of New York uh, lifted an order and they allowed it to be looked at and ProPublica grabbed the code. And this is really... This is really tough, but they grabbed the code and they put it on GitHub, which is kind of amazing. Like, can you legally do that? And I, maybe you can based on- You're the saying the defense refused to agree to like a $1 million penalty if the code was released? Yeah, for that particular one. Uh, right. So the idea is they would let the, the lawyers probably sit in a room and look at the code sure. for a period of time. That's my guess. And then there was a non-disclosure agreement and you'd pay a million dollars if the code leaked somehow or information about the code, which- that seems like no wonder they they ruled in the defendant's side on that, you know, like you should be able to look at it um, without that kind of restriction. I mean, how can you absorb 170,000 lines of code in a short period of time? So anyway, it, it's complex. But this other case, just to kind of a side note, ProPublica posted the, the, the code for it. Uh, and so uh, they published it on GitHub. So this is code that is from the, the city of New York. Uh, and they actually posted code for it. So it's just interesting to think about, like, you know, you hear like DNA evidence was admitted into court and then they was, were found guilty based on DNA evidence. What is that based on? And like, how how well has the code been vetted by non-lawyers and by code, uh, you know, software developers? Um, you know, you have human error that, that's caused all sorts of trouble. My wife and I were talking about this. There's a person named Annie uh, Dukin uh, back in, let's see, I don't know if it's 2016, 2017, oh, 2011. She was a tester that worked uh, as a chemist in Massachusetts Department of Public Health and Drug Abuse. Uh, and she admitted to falsifying evidence for DNA testing and things like that, affecting up to 34,000 cases. So that's human error, right? Yeah. If humans can make these kind of mistakes, like what happens when software exactly. makes a programming switch? I guess I, my thing would be, the probability of it being wrong is probably extremely low, but why not run it? Like the government should probably buy multiple completely independently developed software packages. And they, they all have to essentially have a quorum and agree, not just not relying on one piece of software to say yay or nay. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so to me, I mean, this is completely like picking at a very, very small piece of a giant story, but if you're into, you know, looking at like, uh, you know, crime uh, stories and you're into looking at like, you know, evidence and DNA testing, and then you think, well, the, the confluence of that and software 
makes it very interesting. There's another one I'm, I'm researching right now uh, for myself that might come up in a, in a, a later uh, talk, uh, which is a radiation machine back in the 70s that had a problem in its user interface. And based on the problem, the user interface, uh, if you cursor to, uh, up to up from one spot to another and use an X on one of the pieces of the screen, it gave a lethal dose of radiation. So, you know, and it was just because it was a piece of software with a race condition, you know? So there's all sorts of things that can happen with software. I find this topic interesting. Yeah, that's a common example that at least schools in the U.S., when you take computer science or software engineering, they always bring up Therac 25. Yeah, Therac 25, that's the one. Yep. All right, let's go over to you. Uh, let's take a look at the Sonobus. This is a cool so, one. I kind of put this out there because one, everyone's virtual these days. And I thought this would kind of tickle you pink because you're into music and you, you're a musician yourself. So mm -hmm. this is an open source piece of software. All the code is available for peer-to-peer -peer audio, low latency streaming. Um, I guess the idea is basically virtual jam sessions and you know, musicians can kind of jam together. Now the caveat obviously being speed of light is a limiting factor. So you're not gonna be jamming with someone as the article mentions in Sydney, Australia. And realistically, with the internet and routers and all sorts of things in between, um, they said like the realistic distance between the musicians is probably, should be no more than 500 miles. Okay. Right? So it's probably dependent on traffic uh, conditions and things like that and congestion, but you shouldn't be too far away. But even that is like still, if you can get low latency within that radius, that's amazing. Um, and apparently it has a lot of controls um, to do whatever you need to do. So I have, it sounds like you've actually already Tried it out, Ken? So I have my guitar over there and I tried it. And yes, I, I, there's hardly anybody on the public ones. And so I didn't actually get to jam. I, I got to play a few riffs and then someone played theirs and it got silent. I'm like, awkward. But um, I have a brother. My twin brother lives about six miles from me. And he's a classical musician. and used to be a rock musician. And I've been saying, Mark, we got a jam. And we, we're just both afraid of walking in each other's houses. Yeah. I'm going to try this out. I'm going to bother him. Awesome. Um yeah, it should be fun because he has my Zoom uh, audio uh, recorder, which could plug into his guitar. So that, should, that could be fun. Okay. Yeah, they mentioned the article, like basically musicians getting on Zoom so they can see each other, muting the audio on Zoom, and then just using this to oh, jam. Cool. And they, I don't know how, how scientific their test was or how many times they tested it out, but they said that Zoom did not affect the latency at all of the Sonobus app. Now, I don't know what kind of bandwidth they had and you know stuff like that i think you'd have to have wired connections they also mentioned that too um i've been trying i'm not very fast wireless but the latency is going to be the issue yeah. i think with guitar like for example if and, and any musician musician playing something anything over like 15 to 20 milliseconds you can feel in here so like if you have an echo that's like a slap back echo that sounds like two things it you'll actually start hearing it once you get to 30 40 50 milliseconds it's really pronounced but if you're playing something and trying to sync up with the musician, anything over 20 milliseconds is probably too much. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, yeah. that's very cool. So yeah, so Sonobus, and I, it installed in like two minutes for me. And I had looked at another one that uh, I believe it was MIT um, or Princeton Sound Kitchen or one of those had, I tried working with it and it said you had to have a real-time kernel on Linux and all this, I said, forget this. But this is literally for Windows, Mac and Linux, you drag things into different folders and the plugins are set up and you're live. I didn't even have to reboot. So I also asked the Chariot people if they want to jam. So we'll see, we got a bunch of guitar players and keyboards and stuff. So, them, so. Correct me if I'm wrong, but could you use this to like, let's say you and a couple guys want to do like a, a virtual 
radio show, right? Like an yeah. actual, like old time radio show, the sound effects, the drama, like, you know, someone could be providing the sound effects, someone could be doing the dialogue. Yeah. You try that out. Oh, that could be a riot. And, you know, on my little Zoom thing, I could turn my thing into a little old time recorder sound. So it's that kind of stuff you could do. So that's a great idea. We should do like a War of the Worlds, something Ooh, like that. I like that. Isn't that neat? Cool. So Sonobus, thanks for bringing that up. I tried and I tried and I just couldn't get someone to jam with me. <laughs> All right. Here's another cool thing. Um, if you're an iOS uh, newbie, and I'm definitely, I've never really got into programming iOS. I tried and I just haven't had the time. But, uh, you know, CS193P, which is Stanford's course, Developing Applications for iOS Using Swift UI, they ran a version of it in spring 2020. Mm -hmm. And they have put all the videos online. I know they've done this in prior years too, but uh, all the videos are online and all the lectures and all the examples, the homework, the demo code and everything is up there uh, free to use. Um, they also have a note on the page. Uh, if you go to the Xcode 12, uh, you know, Big Sur page, they mention a few of the things. Um, and so like you can use this as kind of a source artifact and then kind of transfer the, the tools over perhaps. So I'm not sure what your mileage would be with the latest Xcode. But it is all up there, and you can get a good feel for how things work with Swift programming for the iPhone. Pretty cool. Kind of cool. I wonder if they're being unbiased and also have a corresponding Android course as well. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder. Let's see. Android. Nope. So I would believe probably not. Yeah. That yeah. might be. Actually, it might. Yeah. I might not be searching it right. But yeah, cool. So that's Stanford. All right. Let's see here. Oh, we'll get to that in a minute. Okay, so what's this one? How they SRE? Oh, so um, this person, I, I can't pronounce the username even, and I don't want to butcher it, but U-P-G-U-N-D-E-C-H-A is a GitHub uh -huh. And they compiled a bunch of uh, resources. Oh, Abhijit Baker. Okay, so his username is not anything like his real name. Uh, right. So from all kind of like the major industry fan companies out there, um, all compiled a bunch of resources on SRE, which is site reliability, reliability engineering for those that may not know, and basically how to build software that's gonna run, have proper uptime and run well without you having to like be called in the middle of the night, right? There's a lot of things that can be done to properly um, scale your software, monitoring, alerting, logging, a lot of best practices around that and how to architect and design your software to be fault tolerant, resilient, failover, high availability. Anyway, I could talk about it forever. So <laughs> a ton of really good resources all in one place here from, you know, Google and Netflix and Facebook and et cetera. Um, so if you're interested in this stuff or you have teams that need to work on this realistically, not every team has a DevOps or an SRE uh, expert on staff and the developers have to figure it out, which ideally that's what DevOps is. The developer is also responsible for production and they're writing software with that in mind. Anyway, I think um, look through these resources. There's a lot of good stuff out there. I'd probably start, cause there's so much here. I would start with the one from Google. They basically have written a, a, a book or a tome on it, which is like their handbook um, workbook, et cetera, um, that a lot of people I, I know have been recommending to others. So I would start there. Is it the Building Secure and Reliable Systems book? 
I forget which one of the yeah, four, it's one of those, but I would definitely start, start there. That's great. That's um, great. Yeah. Good it's resource. Like, I, I wish, it, you know, software back in the day, at least when I started, it was, okay, get something, get Tomcat up and running, deploy war, and the network and monitoring and uptime is someone else's problem. As long as I can SSH into and look at a log file, I'm good. It's right. not that anymore. If you're still doing software development that way, I mean, <laughs> good luck to you, but <laughs> there's better ways to do it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, people, uh, the, the, the operations are much closer to the development team now. And yeah. in some ways that's good because you're actually writing code in, like if you use Docker or something, you're writing code in the same platform you're going to run it in, which is... You know, I remember we used to have fake databases because you couldn't afford to install Oracle, you know, on your laptops or you couldn't run it. So yeah. it's nice to have um, the ability to run close to a production stack. So at that point, site reliability engineering is more achievable. You can actually try testing the things, spin them up. And and then there's the actual production side of it, which is, this is great. I like this resource. Coolness. All right. So let's see, uh, Mozilla. Now I wanted to talk about this briefly. Remember uh, back uh, a little while back here, uh, last summer, um, there were a couple layoffs. There was 250 layoffs in Mozilla, which was 25% of their staff. And uh, the, one of the statements was that the Rust team got pretty heavily hit. They've created Rust. They were sponsors of Rust early on. Um, now we, we worked with Steve Klabnik and uh, a couple cases on ETE. He came and spoke for us. Uh, he's one of the people that works, I believe, there or did work there. I'm not 100% sure if he's still there. But he mentioned uh, in a post shortly afterwards, um, some other companies have stepped up to pay a bunch of the bills that Mozilla used to pay. This is on, uh, where is this on here? This is on um, Hacker News or something, uh, namely Amazon and Microsoft. And apparently the Rust team majority wasn't working for Mozilla by about 2020. So it looks like they've kind of moved uh, forward and uh, you know worked in other companies as well. Uh, so anyway, so they kind of divested a little bit of some of their resources and 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 for financial reasons because it was 2020. Apparently, uh, there is now a Rust Foundation, yes. and they are now a founding member of the Rust Foundation. So they've invested, I guess, from what I'm reading in here, it says here an interesting thing: the Rust Foundation. Oh, where is it on here? The Rust. This is the last paragraph of their blog post. This is the the new Rust Foundation. Will have board representation for a wide set of stakeholders to help set a path to its own future. This is interesting. Other entities will be able to provide direct financial resources to Rust beyond in-kind contributions. So what I'm reading there, which could be wrong, is that they're providing developer resources, and that's their their commitment. And from what I heard from Steve in there, his note was not everybody at Google who was working on Rust was let go, but there was a large number of people working on the uh, the engine that runs uh, Google's I'm sorry runs that's wrong that runs uh, Mozilla's uh, you know UI yeah. uh, the backbone for it whatever it is uh, Servo. It's, it's and, fun to mention Google. So on last week's uh, tech chat, Google announced uh, and I brought it up was uh, they're joining the foundation supporting it Android Google and Android and Android actually uses Rust for some OS level modules and they're looking to get more and more into using rust so it's definitely getting support from the heavyweights that's great yeah so it's good that they're looks like they're still contributing which is good but they they just had to make some financial moves early on but yeah it seems like it's really getting uh pushed and, and, and the thing about rust is interesting is 
to me is that it's a safer version of programming in C, basically, in C++, if I understand it correctly, yeah. where they, they kind of control the ability to write bad code by kind of making you say, this is a critical section that I have to write unsafe and everything else is written safely. So it catches if you somehow don't properly release or allocate memory or do other things like walk off pointer edges and things like that at compile time, they find this stuff, which is a really interesting way of doing it. If you have OCD, I think Rust is an amazing language. Yeah. Because of the amount of, I guess, annotating you're doing about passing references and what can happen to them, what can happen to them, their mm -hmm. lifetime and scope. And, you know, the, the Google or Android was saying last week um, in the article I found was half of all of their vulnerabilities, bugs are memory safety issues. Mm. Which is why Rust is so attractive. Yeah, I get it. I get it. We have two uh, talks I want to bring up from ETE, since we're talking about ETE a little bit. So in 2016, we did have Steve Klabnik, and he had a, uh, a uh, uh -oh. I'll have to check on the video here and get it fixed, but uh, Rust in Production was his talk back then. Um, looks like the video is good here, so I just have to fix that, but yep. So, you know, he talked back then, uh, you know, whether it was production ready. And then we have Carol Nichols, who is also a contributor to the Rust team, uh, who came out in 2019 um and she called uh talk rust the language of the next 40 years so if you're curious about rust there are two talks right there uh from ete from different years that we, we did. and i just want to point out like so you know just obviously you guys heard we're running et and this is a perfect instance you know this is a it was a nascent language and still is to a certain degree and gaining more and more adoption but we were able to get contributors did you say 2016 and 2019 on rust well ahead of the curve. Um, so I, I think that really speaks to you, the ET committee, everyone involved in the conference itself. Um, it's just amazing that we're able to get uh, people like that to contribute and speak at the conference. Yeah, definitely the committee. I, I just make the lights work, <laughs> <laughs> but they're fantastic. Um, and you know, I think back to that too, even with ETE as a side note, we had Joe Gregorio of Google talking about, you know, Google Sheets back in 2007, I think, when I first started. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and an AWS talk in like 2008. So like we really, we have people on the pulse of this stuff. Uh, it's great to see this stuff mature. But you can go back in the archives and find all sorts of talks early on when it was emerging. And now it's, you know, emergent. So kind of cool. All right. I'm going to ask about a question. I want, I want to know if anyone uh, has looked up and, and started using Radical Candor. Now, Radical Candor is a uh, management framework uh, by a person. Her name is uh, Kim. Oh, darn. Hold on. Get my notes here. Kim, Kim Scott is her name. She's a management guru. So this is a top dollar article on it. Um, uh, and so the idea is behind this is that you're you're finding a way uh, to um, work together without a power source above them, uh, telling them what to do. So it's an empowering kind of framework, the way it's supposed to work. Peers hold each other accountable. Bosses are encouraged uh, to to you know promote agency of the developers to be able to chart their own paths. Is this um, similar to the Ray Dalio? I don't know what that is. I'll look it up. It sounds very familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, so the thing is, there's this there's this matrix that you'll see uh, that so so the funny thing is the, the quick story behind the, why I brought this up is hey I saw it I'm like what is this thing and it I I think it could be used uh, concept wise like you know what your code's awful I'm just being honest you know like the the bad attitude kind of thing we've all worked with people 
who love to be blunt about their their conversations and Linus Torvalds comes to mind about the way the feedback gets uh, sent and received there. Um, she uh, saw that it was being used and mocked on Silicon Valley. So there was, <laughs> it was an episode of Silicon Valley. Yeah, there's an episode of Silicon Valley where this dude shows up and he's trying to help um, the, the the founder, the, the money guy, uh, like, you know, improve the business. So it's like, you got to use this thing called Radcan. And Radcan is like a pun on radical candor. And there was a really funny, like, um, you know, like graph that they had that's basically saying you could be a complete jerk to someone and it's radical. And, you know, so the poor person here, she's like, oh my God, they just trashed my framework. <laughs> so then she came up and in her book, she had a forward to the book where she said, really paste this and put it everywhere. This is what I'm talking about. So like, if there are two axes of, you know, caring versus not giving a poo uh, on the vertical angle and being quiet about things they're challenging directly Radical candor is in the top right qu uh, quadrant. So you care personally about the person, but you will directly challenge their care. Ruthless empathy, I love it. <laughs> I feel for you. You should really put that in production. <laughs> I feel like Dilbert like already invented this like long time ago. <laughs> it's funny you make that statement because right after the Silicon Valley thing, there was a Dilbert cartoon about it as well. So, and I think the punchline is like, uh, Oh, Radical Candor is going great for me. I only had three developers resign. <laughs> so anyway, I picked up the book. It's $1.99 on Kindle, and I figured I'd read through it. But, uh, you know, it, it's it's interesting to see it come up. Um, I'm curious if anyone out there has uh, worked in an organization uh, that has used Radical Candor. Hit us up, you know, tweet us at uh, TechCast Feedback, uh, or just, you know, retweet to us, I should say, at TechCast. Yeah. Ray Dalby um, is famous for the way he runs his company Bridgewater Associates, like the largest hedge fund in the world. Oh. These have, he invented or created a framework called radical transparency uh -huh. uh, that seems similar to this. And it's, uh, it seems like a high pressure environment. Like people are very open and honest with you. The whether you're a higher up or not, the levels don't matter. And like everything is measured and tracked and like they, they, people are recording each other's responses and like rating them during meetings in real time. And they, gather all that information and it just seems like you have to be a specific type of person to thrive in that environment and to do it well like to even yeah. run it well because you could certainly go off on any end of that you know and use it as as a, a bludgeon you know if you need to right it's dangerous so i mean i i, I don't want to mock the framework because i don't know anything about it uh beyond just looking at the name and scratching my head and then finding out it was indeed mocked on silicon valley there are many things like the the, the conjoined triangles of success is one of my favorite silly graphics they had it's like two triangles you know there's always the triangle of like you know you want you know the price versus time yeah. versus scope so it's like two of those together with ridiculous things in the corners <laughs> Um, so they're really funny, but anyway, I thought I'd bring it up. I wonder if anyone's running into that. So feel free to, to hit us up if you have. All right. Uh, let's see here. What do we have? Um, why? Oh yeah. That's, that's more of that. <laughs> Building rich terminal dashboards. This is, I gotta say, this is very cool. So, uh, and for anyone who spends a lot of time on the command line, you know, the value of not having the context switch, not having to switch back to your browser, um, kind of being able to just see information uh, on your command line. And people do all sorts of things like use curl and then like JQ and a bunch of other tools to like 
Slurp data, process it, transform it, and then all the ni nice Linux or Unix goodies to transform it, display it. Um, so if you're already a whiz on the command line, this can make that even better because now um, this tool, which I, I, to me, so just all transparency, I hadn't heard about it before, but apparently mm -hmm. it already has like 20,000 stars on GitHub and a lot of people are using it, but it it's a, a CLI UI text-based framework to allow you to very easily build UIs and like different panes and windows, um, you know, positioning them, sizing them, um, styling colors, stuff like that, makes that very intuitive to programmatically build that up and then obviously display data and has things like, you know, progress bars and meters, um, uh, graphs, things like that. So anyway, uh, one of the examples mentioned in there uh, is someone built a called GH top or GT top is, basically activity on GitHub and right. in real time seeing kind of what's happening on GitHub. Um, I don't know how, I, how useful I find that. I think it's a, it's a cool showcase of that, of, of, of kind of taking that uh, rich framework to the extreme. But, you know, I know Ken mentioned this and I, I use HTOP, my Mac to just to be able to see CPU and memory yeah, and cores. And I don't know if that actually uses this or not. I don't think, I don't it, think does. it does. I but don't think it does. It just gives you an example of like you can get useful visualization and dashboards on the command line without having to go anywhere else. Um, and this is sort of taking that to even more of an extreme. So I'm actually going to, I'm actually, this is really interesting. I'm going to definitely take a look at it further. Um, I think there is the article, basically the author that it mentions that the author of the library was kind of going to plan on winding down from actively developing it. But oh. then someone on Twitter tweeted this and said, like, look at what I did with this GitHub activity with it and a renewed interest. And the author wants to continue working on it. Um, so that's a good story it, right there. Yeah. Definitely uh, check this out, especially if someone is poo pooing the command line or whining about it. You're like, hey, look at this. You know, uh, speaking of HTOP, like I'm, I'm babysitting a, a set of servers we're kind of finishing up on, uh -huh. on AWS. And, you know, HTOP is a fantastic little tool. A console-driven interface has really got short shrift for two decades, ever since GUIs came out. Yep. Everyone just ran away from like the plague. But I do remember a billion years ago, one of my first jobs when I was 21 and bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, I had to try to get SQL forms working on a WISE terminal. <laughs> So I was, you know, then SQL Forms was an Oracle tool that let you enter data, right? And it had character lines. So this stuff here, all these little, you know, lines and drawings and escapes or more more specifically the one in Vim's, uh, you know, this is the, uh, what is this? This is Nerd Tree, right? All those drawing little widgets. They're all, they back in the day, every terminal had different escape codes to draw those things. Uh, but nowadays, everything usually is an ANSI terminal or something like that. Everything can display all the standard drawings, and we've got Unicode characters and things like that. So it's a lot easier to put together a character user interface, yeah. and I think they're just great. In fact, what I another you just made me think of another potential use case for this, mm. um, and I don't know what the API cost implications would be, but is to have a, a friendlier looking AWS CLI where you can at least see yeah. monitor and see certain things by using this rich framework. So true. It's something that would be interesting with, if you use Python and Bado three, you might be able to build your own little utility like that with this tool. Yeah. Yeah. That would be really cool. That would be really cool. Cool. Yeah. That's neat. I got to keep track of this one because the code doesn't look that bad either. 
it's just you know your typical layout type code where you break something apart horizontal or vertical give it some size some ratios and yeah and that's very cool and it's got a live like a, it's got a live view where you can have it refresh periodically that's what that first demo was showing uh, one thing apparently it didn't do is it didn't have keyboard and mouse input so you're on your own there but I'm sure they're thinking about that in the future. So that would be very cool to look at. I so keep track of that. Yeah, there's, I think the possibilities are endless. Like I'm thinking of a, like if I'm barely focused on a specific Slack channel, it's mm. a built a little rich client that allows me to see the messages and communicate back from the command line on Slack. Or like you're tracking your to-do list or something. I think of this as a great one for that. There's that co the, the command line to-do interface, which yep. I forget the name of. Be great to put that in front of that too. Neat. All right. What else do we have here? Uh, this one looks neat. Yes. Okay. The largest data flow job ever. Well, no, I think it's the largest. Well, that's a good question. I don't know if it's, the, I believe it's their largest data flow job. I don't mm -hmm. know if it's the largest data flow job Let's ever. Let's call it theirs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so data flow is a service by Google for um, handling stream processing. So, um, bringing in basically imagine like a click stream or events of events coming in and you want to uh, transform those, uh, write them out somewhere, do pub sub, do like windowing or sessionization protocols. Anyway, it can handle as a managed data streaming service. So anyway, Spotify for um, if there's users using it and you're a paid subscriber, you saw last year at the end of the year, they did this big thing wrapped where it kind of like, showed you your top songs and artists and things like that and then compared with other users as well pretty neat um in my case it didn't i don't i didn't feel like it amounted to too much for me like it the stuff it recommended to me was like oh okay yeah i i get that i this is a song i listen to the most yeah but for certain people that listen to a lot more music than i do um i think it did it, it yield some interesting results of where they were spending their time but anyway um the the, the big thing here and actually, hold on. I'm actually gonna. I wrote some interesting notes down. So let me go to that. Sure. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Hold on. Uh, I know that feeling. <laughs> uh, there was a lot of good stuff in here. So um, basically, the key things in in data streaming and handling is like how you partition your data. So when the data comes in, the way you the way you partition your data determines how the data gets distributed across you know nodes in a cluster. So if you partition it well, your data is going to be kind of evenly distributed across the nodes, and therefore you're going to be able to maximize uh, processing per node versus the data being skewed on a, on several nodes, and then therefore those nodes doing all the work, and you're not really getting the full advantage of parallelism. And um, I used to work on Spark stuff a couple years back and, and hit this quite often where data dis distribution matters a lot, and you would hit out-of-memory errors, which is article mentions, when you're processing data on nodes, if the data is not evenly distributed and skewed. Anyway, um, they use Apache Beam, which is a streaming, uh, open source streaming, data streaming, like you know, Flink and others, uh, data streaming library API um, that also works with uh, Google Cloud Dataflow. So if you're using Google Cloud Dataflow, you can use Apache Beam, which Spotify does. And um, SCIO, SCIO is a Scala API bindings for Beam. So Spotify is a big Scala shop as well. And um, so they use Apache Beam, SCIO, and Google Cloud Dataflow. And kind of one of their key things here is, you know, they take their event data and they partition in hourly or daily partitions. So they basically have a ton of data when you consider the whole year. Um, oh, yeah. And 
they take that data, they partition it using a hashing function, gets partitioned across things. Um, but what happens is when you have that much data, um, a key thing for joining large distributed data sets is a process called shuffling. And shuffling means that you need to get the data to other data of the, sim of, of the same key when you're doing operations, when you're joining. So you have like tons of data across nodes. Well, I may have a data with like, you know, the, a key of January 1st, 2020 on one node here, on another node there. And sh when you're trying to join on date, for example, it'll be, okay, I have to shuffle this data so the data can get, the same type of data can get um, together on the same nodes. That incurs, a, sorry, I'm taking a long time here. That incurs a lot of uh, network overhead because you're shuffling all the data around. Um, and until you do that, you can't actually perform the join. Anyway, they, they were trying to think of ways to kind of do that up front. So before the data even gets distributed out, they're doing a thing called a sort merge bucket join, which is like, okay, let me sort the data by keys into buckets. And then there you have these sorted buckets already. And then merge sorting that is a lot easier. It doesn't take disk or a lot of memory to do. Um, so basically the article goes over how they did sort merge merge bucket join and implement that across this data pipeline to optimize it a lot and to save a lot of time on the join. So one, it's always interesting that even like 30, 40 years in software engineering and really at the end of the day, what we're all trying to do is optimize large joints. That was yeah. in the 80s <laughs> and it's true now. And I don't think that'll ever really change. Uh, maybe, no. quantum, maybe quantum computing will change that. But anyway, if you're interested in data engineering, um, large data problems, partitioning, and, and how companies are attacking that. This is a really cool read. It's fun that at the end, it looks like that. It's <laughs> a lot of work there, but the DSL or whatever they build in Scala makes it look pretty straightforward, but I'm sure the lift is crazy underneath all these methods. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, that's good. All right. So yeah, we'll, we'll post all of these. If you go to the, uh, if you go to the chariotsolutions.com slash podcast page, you'll see it, uh, our, our notes there and also on the YouTube channel as well uh is that everything i think it's everything this week i think we got it all so. double check um yeah i think, yep, I think so all right cool if you're my takeaway that is if you're really good at optimizing joins you can get a job anywhere <laughs> <laughs> oh man all right well hey listen everybody thank you for joining us again this week um sujan and i are very glad to have you here no fun uh, and joining anyway joining us thank you for outer joining with us this week <laughs> it's a union of many different sets of people uh that are grouped by various areas and uh we're going to hash you into buckets and good luck anyway uh thank you for being here and uh if you have any feedback again hit us at techcastfeedback at chariotsolutions.com or go ahead and tweet us some feedback at, at techcast on twitter we'd love to hear from you again you can subscribe to us from all the major podcatching platforms uh, and uh, look at our YouTube channel, chariotsolutions.com slash YouTube. I'm sorry, let's try that again. YouTube.com slash chariotsolutions, and then also check us out on our website, chariotsolutions.com. So again, until next week, I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Dork Sujan. Uh, thanks for coming. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I'm the dork here. <laughs> All right, make it a good week, folks. <laughs>